When I worked at the Washington Post, from which I retired in August, we focused a lot on problems and not so much on solutions. That's a pretty common criticism of the media. One reason I'm excited about doing this podcast is it gives me the opportunity to talk more about how to fix things instead of just exposing what's going wrong. In this episode, we'll talk about ways to overcome one of the most fundamental challenges of all, how to ensure that all residents in the metropolitan Washington region have enough food to eat. We are one of the wealthiest metropolitan areas in the nation, indeed in the world. So we certainly ought to be able to keep everybody fed, right? I mean, that's pretty basic. But in fact, about one out of 10 households isn't sure where its next meal is coming from. And that figure is higher for racial minorities and families with children. The primary barriers are a lack of financial resources and poverty. Those are the major drivers, but um, also important to know racism and disinvestment and underinvestment in communities of color, including in where healthy food retail is located. Balancing the cost of housing, healthcare, education, transportation, and food is a challenge for too many of our residents. That's Lindsay Smith, a food systems planner at the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments, or COG. We'll hear more from her later. I'm your host, Robert McCartney. As Lindsay said, the root problem is simply that too many people don't have enough money to afford basic necessities. Fortunately, they can get government help, such as through the federal SNAP program, better known as food stamps. Congress dramatically increased SNAP benefits in response to the pandemic. People also can get groceries for free from food pantries. But there are other steps we can and must take as well. I'll talk with local officials and experts about how to put enough nutritious, healthy food on tables for everyone in the region. Let's start by talking to someone with a first-hand look at the need in the community. Jackie DiCarlo is CEO of the Mana Food Center, a pantry headquartered in Silver Spring, and an important player in combating hunger in our region. I asked her how the pandemic and accompanying recession affected her work. At the peak, the demand for food grew more than 40%. And now, thankfully, that is diminishing a little bit, but certainly we still have the pandemic concerns for health and safety, as well as the economy is, uh, the recovery period is going to be a long one for these um, neighbors whose economic situation was pretty fragile, or they may have even been you know, personally touched um, by by the pandemic itself. Roughly how many people or how many households, I guess, would be benefiting from food that they get via manna in a month? The main program we have is called Food for Families, which is a monthly distribution. And that was about uh, 3,000 or so folks monthly before the pandemic, depending again on the time of the year. It's, it's worse in the winter, of course. And now we're at about 3,600 or so, but it's mostly those who are economically fragile and who may be working, um, but just barely making ends meet. And something like a furlough or a health emergency um, you know, taps all their savings, taps the, you know, maxes out their credit cards, and they need the, the help of um, receiving food, uh, free food services from us. 
The good news is that the emergency spurred actors across the region to step up in multiple ways to address the increased need for food. This was particularly important in the early months of the pandemic before Congress increased federal assistance, a much needed expansion. What is important to know is, is that we never had to turn anybody away. Um, we were alongside a lot of other groups that jumped into the fray and responded to the emergency, met the demand. The community made that possible by giving us donations so that we had enough food on the shelves. The crisis also led to changes to improve the food supply chain, innovations that are continuing as we hope the pandemic is approaching its end. Our county government and uh, private philanthropy helped us expand a program called Farm to Food Bank, where we went from purchasing um, from local farmers, like a half a dozen farmers or so in farmers markets, and we're now up to working with 30 farms um, in the region, many of whom are in the Montgomery County Ag Reserve. You've used the phrase food insecurity a couple of times, and I, I hear that a lot. Can you tell our audience how you define food insecurity? What does that mean in practical terms? Yeah, sorry if it's a bit jargony. Um, so food insecurity has some official definitions, and it all actually goes on a, a spectrum um, from most you know, extreme to, to moderate to occasional food insecurity. The way that I try to explain it to folks is just it's that situation where you're not always sure where your next meal is coming from. You are a mom or a grandparent who's trying to provide um, food for your your kids, your family, and you're looking at your paycheck, you're looking at your bills, and you're trying to figure out how are you going to make ends meet. If you're food insecure, you're probably housing insecure. You're probably um, medically fragile in terms of your access to to the healthcare system. Again, another thing that our eyes have been open about is the the emotional stresses that this public health crisis has put us all in. You may not have the tools or familiarity with um, getting the services you need. And so what we are trying to do as food assistance providers is work throughout the nonprofit community to make connections. Now let's talk to an elected official who's devoted a lot of effort to improving food security in the region. That would be DC Council Member Mary Che. In addition to her leadership on this topic in the district, she's been chairing a new regional committee at COG focused on food and agriculture. She's sponsored numerous bills to promote more access to food, such as for school children and people in low-income neighborhoods. Now she's promoting one to help seniors. It addresses the challenge that many older people eligible for food stamps or other help aren't aware they can get it. There's a big misunderstanding among many seniors about what they would be entitled to have. There was a survey that we did here uh, a while back about people who were not enrolled in public benefits, uh, and they showed how unsure they were, whether they were eligible or not. And then it, one of the things the bill tries to address is the somewhat complicated nature of applying. And so even if they do find out about it, maybe they don't have the ability to actually go through the application process. And then the D.C. Department of Human Services would be responsible for reaching out to seniors and guiding them through the bureaucracy. Shea said she doesn't know of any significant opposition to the bill. She said her experience with an earlier bill, the Healthy Schools Act, showed that whatever opposition does arise, 
evaporates once the results are in. Among other things, that bill provided that even if kids arrived at school late, they would be able to eat breakfast in the classroom. At first, it seemed like there might have been some pushback by the teachers' union or teachers. No, they don't want kids eating in the classroom when they first come in. It'll be a mess and chaotic and whatever. When children have something to eat, they're able to learn. When they come hungry, you know, uh, they can't focus. So after they had their free breakfast, it turns out that it was, it was more um, conducive to learning and then another solution has been to encourage more food sellers to locate in lower income neighborhoods such as wards 7 and 8 in the eastern and southern parts of the city those are in contrast with affluent ward 3 which che represents in northwest dc there's a wide disparity in the number and quality of grocery stores uh, available to district residents depending upon where they live if you just listen to these numbers, Ward 3, where I am, has one grocery store for every 8,600 residents, okay? Ward 8 has one grocery store for 85,000 residents. Ward 7, one for 79,000 residents. And so uh, among the things we've been doing uh, to address that disparity is to give these tax incentives to, for grocery stores to open in low-income neighborhoods, and to give money to uh, corner stores to have fresh food, uh, you know, and healthy snacks in their corner stores in low-income communities. Let's hear more from Lindsay Smith, the food systems planner at COG. She shared some data about how food insecurity falls most heavily on racial minorities. In the last census survey, 4% of white households reported food insufficiency, compared to 11% of black households and 14% of Hispanic or Latino households. Unfortunately, food security is also higher in households with children across all groups. However, again, black and Hispanic or Latino households are disproportionately burdened. By far, the biggest protection against hunger is direct government aid to families. We've already talked about the biggest one, SNAP. For every one meal that food banks provide, SNAP provides nine. There's also the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, known as WIC, as well as Free Meals for School Children. Governments significantly raised those benefits during COVID, but the increases could start to be rolled back as early as January 2022. You know, the federal nutrition programs, those are really our first line of defense against hunger. And there have been some really important lessons learned during COVID-19. You know, as a region, we need to be talking with our um, federal delegation to really, you know, advocate for as many permanent improvements as we can. Smith called my attention to the role that local farms can play in supplying food for our region. There are a lot of small farms here that are an important source, especially for fresh vegetables and fruit. Protecting that farmland is important to support the resilience of the food supply here. The shortages we all saw at the start of the pandemic were a reminder that it's good to have short supply chains that are reliable in a crisis. A lot of people in our region don't really think of it as a agricultural area. Where are the farms in, in our region? Where, where are they located for the most part? 
if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have a different answer, but my answer now is they're actually, they're everywhere. You know, in terms of like, who's got the most land in farming in the region, we do want to look at some of our uh, neighbors like Loudoun County, Frederick County, Maryland, Montgomery County, but there's a lot of agriculture in Prince William, Prince George's, um, Charles County. And then, you know, increasingly urban agriculture is, is growing. The amount of land devoted to farming in the region has declined over the past decades, but the principal factor affecting food self-reliance has been the steady growth in population. Food production just has not kept up. In addition to advocating for continuation and expansion of these federal programs, what else could the region do to improve food security? I think we really need to raise the visibility of small farmers, farmers of color and food entrepreneurs. And, you know, as you pointed out, pandemic has really shown us that shorter supply chains are more than just a nice thing to have. And we need to invest in both the human and capital infrastructure that's going to be required to grow our region's food economy. So technical assistance, processing, aggregation, storage, technology. And then farmers and entrepreneurs need to be able to affordably access these. Hugo Mogoyon is executive director of Fresh Farm, a 25-year-old nonprofit that is the largest farmers market organization in the Mid-Atlantic. It works with more than 120 area farms. Tell us about the presence of farmers in this area and what role they play we would be surprised to know that it's a thriving uh, agricultural industry here and in, in the region. I think this uh, industry brings like more than $700 million in, in, in sales and gross sales in, in the region and creates thousands of jobs. It is mo mostly vegetables um, and mid-sized uh, farmers are growing um, specialty crops and there are also like some um, few commodity farms. Also, you know, Merida has been known for the dairy farms. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I think it was really hard for farmers to find where to bring that food that they were growing. It was a lot of uncertainty because as you can imagine the farmers plan the season months in advance. So many of that, um, those plans just like were affected by the, by the pandemic. During the pandemic, Fresh Farm helped those farms keep their products flowing to the community by connecting them to alternate channels for distribution. They streamlined the supply chain, or what he calls the value chain, to more than two dozen farmers markets. They also aggregated locally produced food and shipped it directly to grassroots community groups. During the pandemic, we actually were able to distribute what is um, close to more than 300,000 meals, you know, we working with, with local farmers and connecting them with institutions that serve the communities already, right? So churches and food pantries, childcare centers. That's one of the opportunities we're trying to create at, at Fresh Farmers, connecting these farmers with opportunities to sell that would also solve food access issues. Such aid is especially important when you're part of a global market in foodstuffs. Other producers may have lower costs, but also be less reliable. You know, competing with the global food system is also difficult because apples that come from Chile are cheaper than the apples that are 
grown in Pennsylvania or West Virginia or Maryland. So we as a region and governments in a region need to think how we can create alternative value chains so our farmers could have opportunities to, to sell. And the pandemic showed that that global food system is very fragile. And uh, we saw grocery stores with empty shelves. Meanwhile, our local farmers show that we can have a resilient food system if we work with them. Fresh Farm also is promoting food equity with a $1.4 million federal grant to expand a program that doubles the value of customers' SNAP benefits if they're used at farmers' markets. Now I'll end with some thoughts of my own. Surely our very well-off region should do whatever it takes to keep anybody from going hungry. Unfortunately, many jobs, especially in the services sector, don't pay anywhere near enough to cover the total cost of basic necessities like rent, health care, and food in our high-cost area. Plus, there are large numbers of people who can't work because of age, illness, or physical limitations. As I said at the start, I want this podcast to focus as much as possible on solutions, and we've heard a number of them. Like everywhere else in the country, our area depends first on federal programs such as SNAP and WIC to help low-income people afford enough food. Our representatives in Congress and other elected officials and advocates should press to continue those programs, at least at current levels, that were elevated during the pandemic. It's also critical to make sure that everybody who's eligible for federal or other help is aware that they can get it and knows how to go about applying for and obtaining it. That's where initiatives like Councilmember Mary Che's bill come in to reach out to people who might not be aware of what's available or need help accessing it. The next line of defense are the many food banks and food pantries that distribute food for free to those who need it. Local governments, philanthropies, and individual donors should support these organizations, especially in the first stage of a crisis like the pandemic, before the federal government can organize its response. It would help a lot if there were more grocery stores in so-called food deserts, or poor neighborhoods where places to buy food are few and far between. Finally, we should invest in and otherwise strengthen the position of our local farmers. They provide a variety of fresh, healthy produce, and their goods remain accessible even among disruptions in the national or global food market. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Look for the next one in January. We welcome your comments. Please send them to thinkregionally, one word, at mwcog.org. This podcast is produced by Megan Goodman and Janelle Partman at COG. For now, this is your host, Robert McCartney, urging everyone to think regionally.